This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 108th episode of the podcast. Today is Thursday, August 24th. And before we get started, as usual, I want to send a huge thank you to all of these kind individuals that decided to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So this week we have Aaron, Becky Lynch, Bradley, Captain Jingle Pants, love that name, Chris Chaplin, Claudette Cohen, David Bondi, Don Baham, Hannah Engel, Kia Kiani, Mary Leatherman, Nick Sparopoulos, Rogue Fogue, Roxanne Gill, Roxy Rowans, Rizard Week, Sarah Creighton, Srikar, and Swami Amala. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals for supporting the show. If you'd like to also support us, you can visit patreon.com slash humanistreport or you could support us through PayPal, either monthly or through a one-time donation by going to humanistreport.com. So we missed last week's episode, and we've got a jam-packed show. There, there are so many things that I want to talk about. It's just, it's crazy. So this will probably be a longer episode. I decided to not have an interview this week just because I wanted to get caught up on everything that I missed. So on this episode. First, we'll talk about Donald Trump's decision to extend and expand the war in Afghanistan, along with a new war he wants to start in Latin America. And while we're on the topic of US imperialism, we'll talk about how the so-called resistance is trying to stop him here. Spoiler alert, they're not. Also in this episode, we'll talk about a new low that the DNC is deciding to stoop to in an effort to raise money how Joan Walsh and Joy Reid were called out on their bullshit, but when it comes to progressives, Elizabeth Warren angered the establishment, I'll tell you why, and Bernie Sanders is about to make them even more angry by introducing his Medicare for All bill. And I'll also provide you with a follow-up to the terrifying Nazi protest in Charlottesville, and finally in this episode, we'll talk about Draft Bernie and the mainstream media's coverage of net neutrality. So all of these topics will be touched on in this episode. Um, again, I'm so happy to be back. I am so sorry for missing last week's episode. There was just so much going on and just more than usual, things have been a little bit more chaotic for me. So uh, I, I completely apologize. I felt very uh, disappointed that I, I missed the episode and I actually felt a little bit of anxiety and uneasiness by missing because... I don't think I've ever missed a week, or certainly if I've missed a week, I've had enough content to keep us, you know, posting at least one thing per day, so, you know, it, it really sucked, hopefully I don't have to do that again, um, and just because, you know, elephant in the room, I do have a new tattoo, um, I actually got this on my 30th birthday, it was a present, um, and I've been wearing long sleeve shirts, because for those of you who have new tattoos, um, 
they look really gross when they're healing and you know they scab and that kind of flakes off and i had to get it done you know in just black ink and then a couple of weeks later we followed it up with some color and then it's just been flaky for a long time and now it's finally healed and i actually don't feel like i'm going to gross you out by showing it on camera so for those of you who are just curious you know i i can't not talk about it because elephant in the room anytime something is aesthetically different be it with the set or myself i feel like i've got to point it out um also my braces came up there's just, there's so much shit has happened in the last couple of weeks but Here's what I want to get to. I want to get to the politics because there, there's so much that happened over the week. If you followed me on Twitter, you kind of get a little bit of what I was thinking. But, you know, now we're going to really dive into the subject. So let's start with Afghanistan because Donald Trump is doing exactly what he said he wouldn't do. Throughout his tenure as president, Donald Trump has flip-flopped on basically every single issue he campaigned on but if there were any issues if i could boil it down to just one that i thought he might have actually held strong on it would have been the war in afghanistan because he has been unequivocally against it and he vocalized his opposition to the war in afghanistan on numerous occasions in fact this is what he had to say previously about the war in afghanistan afghanistan is a total and complete disaster what are we doing? We don't build our schools. We don't build our highways. We don't build anything anymore. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with our leadership? Money should be spent in our country. We should rebuild our country. And we should also, by the way, reduce our $16 trillion in debt. Let's get with it. Get out of Afghanistan. We've wasted billions and billions of dollars, and more importantly, thousands and thousands of lives, not to mention all of these young men and women that come home and they really have problems. Let's go. Let's get with it. We need leaders that know what they're doing. Now, it wasn't like that was the only instance where you can find him speaking out against the war in Afghanistan because he was on Fox and Friends once before and he talked about how he was opposed to the war. Uh, and on Twitter, at least a dozen times, you can find him speaking out against the war in Afghanistan. Back in 2011, he stated we needed to withdraw from Afghanistan and he reiterated the same sentiment in 2012 and once again in 2013, saying very clearly not to allow our very stupid leaders to sign a deal that keeps us in Afghanistan through 2024. And he repeatedly made the case for withdrawing from Afghanistan again and again and again and again and again and i mean you get the point right so i mean up until this point he's made his position very clear on afghanistan he thinks our leaders are stupid we should bring the troops home and just end the war we're spending too much and it's cost so many lives that we just can't morally let this go on any longer so now that he's the president he gets to do exactly what he's been saying we should have done a long time ago he can now pull us out from the afghanistan war so he recently held a press conference to discuss his approach to afghanistan moving forward and it started out as you would have expected if you followed his rhetoric up until this point on the war uh he basically said what uh we've all been saying for a while the american people are weary of war without victory nowhere is this more evident than with the war in afghanistan the longest war in American history, 17 years. I share the American people's frustration. 
So up until this point, if you've tuned into this press conference, then you might have thought, like myself, okay, I kind of like where this is going. So <laughs> after saying that, after expressing that he knows just how frustrated the American people actually has been with our numerous interventions, he's, of course, going to call for an immediate withdrawal of troops, right, and just end the war entirely. Well, actually... It's quite the opposite. Not only is he expanding the war, but he's extending the war as well. My original instinct was to pull out. And historically, I like following my instincts. But all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. In other words, when you're President of the United States. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, America's interests are clear. We must stop the resurgence of safe havens that enable terrorists to threaten America. We will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities. Conditions on the ground, not arbitrary timetables, will guide our strategy from now on. America's enemies must never know our plans or believe they can wait us out. I will not say when we are going to attack, but attack we will. Jesus Christ. So it's not just like he's continuing the war. He's actually ramping up the war, and he will be sending at least 4,000 more troops to Afghanistan. And this is after he said on numerous occasions that our leaders are stupid for staying in Afghanistan. And now he's repeating the same exact mistake that he lambasted President Obama and, of course, George Bush for as well. So even though he's been railing against the war in Afghanistan for years, see, when you're president and you actually have to make the decisions, you just see the world from a different point of view. I mean, it's not because he has surrounded himself around neoconservatives. It's not because he took money from the defense industry, right? Of course not. It's because, you know, he's president now, so he wants to be responsible. Right. Well, if you want to actually be responsible, then you would withdraw from the, uh, the war in Afghanistan because we've been there for 17 years. What is it going to take? You campaigned on getting us out of Afghanistan, and now you're choosing to keep us there. And the worst part is that he won't say how long we're going to be there. He won't say specifically how many troops he's willing to actually commit. This is just ridiculous. But I mean, he's assuring us that this time, you know, unlike his predecessors, it's actually going to be different because according to Alex Emmons of The Intercept, quote, we are not nation building again, Donald Trump stressed boasting that we are going to participate in economic development to help defray the cost of this war to us. Amid all the contradictions, though, Trump did make one aspect of his policy absolutely clear. The U.S. will kill more people in Afghanistan. We are killing terrorists, he said. Retribution will be fast and powerful as we lift restrictions and expand authorities. Trump has already expanded U.S. bombing campaigns throughout the Middle East, authorizing drone strikes at five times the rate of his predecessor, Barack Obama. Civilian casualties in the war against the Islamic State are on track to double under Trump, according to research by Air Wars, which tracks coalition airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. But in Afghanistan, Trump's plan for more killing and little else ignores a crucial point. 
the frenzied pace of killing under the Bush administration was what led to a nearly defeated Taliban's resurgence, bogging the U.S. down in an endless war. Trump is either forgetting the mistakes of recent U.S. history in Afghanistan, or worse, he simply doesn't care. So, he's assuring us that it's going to be different this time because he actually has a strategy, unlike our stupid leaders from before, but his strategy, as far as we know, is just to kill more people. Well, newsflash Donald Trump, we tried this before and guess what? It didn't work. We only made matters worse. And this is because we're not waging a war in Afghanistan to defeat the Taliban. We wage wars because to the US empire, war is a business. The military industrial complex only cares about making money. And since defense contractors fund our leaders, their one job is to keep them in business effectively. And our leaders also love invading other countries because of the resources that they're able to loot from them. And Afghanistan is no different. And it's not even like Donald Trump stands out from his predecessors because he actually has a military objective in mind. No, you can describe his reasoning in one word. Minerals. Because Donald Trump already has a bunch of military generals and neoconservatives in his ear telling him to stay in Afghanistan, so when you factor in the resources he'll be able to loot, Donald Trump decided that he might as well just keep this business going, even if he campaigned on doing the opposite. And like Bush, like Obama, he tells us that this is about defeating the Taliban. But it's not about defeating the Taliban, because if we wanted to defeat the Taliban, we could have done that because the Taliban actually offered to surrender. And I'm not joking about that. So according to Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, he explains, Did you know that shortly after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, the Taliban tried to surrender? So when the Taliban came to surrender, the U.S. turned them down repeatedly in a series of arrogant blunders spelled out in Anand Gopal's investigative treatment of the Afghanistan war. No good men among the living. Only full annihilation was enough for the Bush administration. They wanted more terrorists in body bags. The problem was that the Taliban had stopped fighting, having either fled to Pakistan or melted back into civilian life. Al-Qaeda, for its part, was down to a handful of members. So how do you kill terrorists if there aren't any? Simple. Afghans that the U.S. worked with understood the predicament their military sponsors were in. So they fabricated bad guys. Demand has a way of creating supply. And the U.S was paying for information that led to the death or capture of Taliban fighters. Suddenly, there were Taliban everywhere. Score settling ran amok. All you had to do to get your neighbor killed or sent to Guantanamo was tell the U.S. they were members of the Taliban. Doors would be kicked in, no questions asked. The men left standing, became warlords, built massive fortunes, and shipped their wealth abroad. After a few years of this charade, after their surrender efforts were repeatedly rebuffed, the old Taliban started picking up guns again. When they were driven from power, the population was happy to see them go. The U.S. managed to make them popular again. Liberals then spent the 2008 presidential election complaining that the U.S. had ignored Afghanistan, when in reality, the parts of the country without troop presence were the only parts at peace, facing no insurgency against the Afghan government, such as it was. Then President Barack Obama came in and launched a surge in troop levels while simultaneously announcing a withdrawal, coupled with the heightened focus on night raids, relying on the same system of unreliable intelligence that had netted so many many uninvolved people already. So Donald Trump is repeating the same exact mistakes as George W. Bush and Barack Obama. 
So at this point, we're just never going to get out of Afghanistan. We might as well just permanently plant our flag there and declare it the 51st state because we are never leaving because it doesn't matter who you vote for. You can literally vote for an, a so-called anti-war candidate like Barack Obama and still stay there. You can vote for a su supposed non-interventionist like Donald Trump and you're still not going to leave the country. It doesn't matter what you want. All that matters is that the military-industrial complex wants us to stay in Afghanistan and the military-industrial complex never loses. It always gets what it wants. It doesn't matter if 78% of Americans have an unfavorable view of the war. War is a business, and when you've got pundits in corporate media championing his decision and praising him as being more presidential because he's choosing to continue this 17-year-long war, along with a party, a so-called opposition party, that is cheerleading his war efforts. Well, I mean, this wasn't a difficult decision for Donald Trump, even if it makes him look like a gigantic hypocrite and contradicts everything he said over the course of the last 10 years. So this to me is just so unbelievably frustrating because... I mean, even though we have power transitions in the country, we can vote for someone, no matter what they tell you, they're going to stay in Afghanistan. They're not leaving. We're not leaving anytime soon. So this is just so angering to me. I, I don't even know. I've been thinking about this and it's just been like stewing over in my mind. I mean, get the fuck out of Afghanistan. You told us you would leave. It was maybe one of the few pluses of Donald Trump because he campaigned as a non-interventionist. And now he's doing the exact opposite of what he said he would do before he was elected. He's doing exactly what our stupid leaders did. And that's according to him. That's what he called them. So now Donald Trump is just like all of our other stupid leaders, ignoring the will of the people and listening exclusively to the military industrial complex. We are a democracy in name only because no matter what we want, we never get our way. So as you all know, Donald Trump recently announced that he would be expanding and extending the war in Afghanistan and he even hinted at potentially doing more in Pakistan, even though immediately after he was elected, he ramped up our ongoing drone war in Pakistan. So I mean, he's got that region of the world completely covered, but he is now setting his sights on a different country in another region of the world, Venezuela. And I wish I could say that this is just hyperbole, but it's not. He literally threatened military action in Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela is uh, a mess, it's a very dangerous mess and a very sad situation. We have many options for Venezuela. And by the way, I'm not gonna rule out a military option. We have many options for Venezuela. This is our neighbor. This is, you know, we're all over the world and we have troops all over the world in places that are very, very far away. Venezuela is not very far away and the people are suffering and they're dying. We have many options for Venezuela, including a possible military option if necessary. He said a military option is on the table, not once, but twice. He didn't mince words. He planned to say that. He threatened to invade Venezuela. So we know that he's probably staying in Afghanistan because of their mineral resources, and he, he wants a little bit of that. But when it comes to Venezuela, that's a different story, according to Donald Trump, because, you know, the government, they've just consolidated too much power. Um, they've become too dictatorial. 
and he really cares about the people. The people there are just suffering, and if he were to invade Venezuela, it would be for humanitarian reasons, right? No. Humanitarian wars, that's not a thing. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a humanitarian war. In fact, I'll tell you why Donald Trump is suddenly so interested in Venezuela. So when you look at countries with the largest oil reserves in the world here, Way at the top is Venezuela with more than 298 billion barrels of oil. And according to World Atlas, quote, Venezuela is recognized as the country with the highest volume of proven oil reserves in the world today. This has been a rather recent distinction as until the turn of the last decade, Saudi Arabia held that place by quite some distance. Now, what's funny is that Unlike Saudi Arabia, Venezuela doesn't want anything to do with us. So they're not willing to share any of their oil with us. They want us to go away. In fact, back in 2006, this is how the former president of Venezuela, the late Hugo Chavez, described then-president George W. Bush. The president of the United States, the gentleman to whom I refer as at the devil, came here talking as if he owned the world. Truly, as the owner of the world. I think we could call a psychiatrist to analyze yesterday's statement made by the President of the United States. As the spokesman of imperialism, he came to share his nostrums to try to preserve the current pattern of domination, exploitation, and pillage of the peoples of the world. An Alfred Hitchcock movie could use it as a scenario. I would even propose a title, The Devil's Recipe. So, needless to say, uh, Venezuela was not willing to play ball with us. They were not willing to offer, offer us any oil. And Hugo Chavez wasn't a big fan of George W. Bush, to say the least. And if they really didn't like us when George Bush was the president, then they should really, really love us now that Donald Trump is the president, considering the fact that he's the individual that said this. I would bomb the out of him. <laughs> I would just bomb those suckers. And that's right. I'd blow up the pipes. I'd blow up the refi I'd blow up every single inch. There would be nothing left. And you know what? You'll get Exxon to come in there in two months. You ever see these guys, how good they are, the great oil companies? They'll rebuild that sucker brand new. It'll be beautiful. And I'd ring it, and I'd take the oil. And I said, I'll take the oil. And I'd take the oil. So that statement right there should scare any country throughout the world that has a considerable amount of oil resources because just last month, Donald Trump actually placed new sanctions on Venezuela and cited the government's consolidation of political power and growing authoritarianism as the reason why he did that. And even though Hugo Chavez's successor, Nicolas Maduro, has since maintained basically the same stance towards the United States as Chavez, well, it's pretty evident that Trump is starting to break him because Maduro recently stated, quote, if he, Trump, is so interested in Venezuela, here I am. Mr. Donald Trump, here is my hand. So in other words, he's saying, please don't sanction us anymore. Don't invade us. Look, just... 
come to the table and maybe I'll consider giving you some of our oil. That's effectively what he seems to be hinting at right here. And what's really sad to me is that if you're a citizen in Venezuela, you might be dissatisfied with your government. I would be too. But you no longer have to just worry about the United States exploiting your country for resources that your government doesn't really share, you know, with you in terms of wealth. Uh, you now have to be worried about an outright invasion. So to have the president of the United States so casually threaten to invade another country, you can't do this. You can't say that military options are on the table so frequently. You've said this about Iran, you've said this about North Korea, and now you're saying this about Venezuela. You can't just invade every single country that you disagree with. I have a lot of problems with Venezuela. I wish that they would actually share their oil wealth with citizens and stop keeping them so impoverished. I mean, it, it's really, it's a frustrating situation in Venezuela, but that doesn't mean that you can invade them. Stay out of other countries. Mind your own business. I mean, U.S. imperialism has got to stop. But again, it really doesn't matter who you vote for. Republican, Democrat, they're all going to do the same thing. They're going to keep us involved in these wars because the military-industrial complex wants them to do so. So with Donald Trump threatening to invade Venezuela now, you know, the Pentagon, neoconservatives in his administration, they all love what they're hearing because the more countries they can invade, the better because war is a business and that's all there is to it. So if he can exploit Venezuela for their oil wealth, then certainly that's going to benefit the United States. And it's just, to me, it's so sickening. This is why people around the world view the United States in such a negative light. It's because of things like this. We're going to do something different today. We're actually going to play a game, and this game is based off of President Trump's recent announcement to extend and expand the war in Afghanistan. Now, as a result, there were a lot of senators that spoke out and either said uh, that they supported this decision or they were against this decision. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you two responses from two prominent, very different senators, and we'll see if you can guess whether or not they are either a Democrat or Republican. So this is the first response. I strongly disagree with the administration's actions here. I've spoken to the president and I know he wants to end this war. We've all heard him say it, but Tak won't get it done. Although I've been informed that the president rejected larger expansions of troops than the one announced this week, that's not good enough. He should have rejected this one and stuck to his principles. He knows this war is over and he, unlike the last two presidents, should have the guts to end it for real on his watch. So that was from a senator who clearly is obviously against Donald Trump. Now, here's the second statement. I think the answer is we want to be invested, to put it bluntly. What happens in Afghanistan stays in Afghanistan. And this individual also adds, the country needs a discussion of the continuing rationale for being in Afghanistan. So in other words, we need to sell this war to the American people and make sure that they buy into our 17-year-long occupation. And we need to make sure that the terrorists don't bring this fight to America. So that's why it's really important that we stay in Afghanistan. Okay, so after hearing these two very different statements, the answers may become obvious. The first one was very much against Donald Trump's war in Afghanistan. And the second one was supporting him and presumably supporting the uh, the idea that the war should not just be extended, but expanded as well. So when it comes to the very first comment in support of withdrawing from Afghanistan, which was obviously opposed to Donald Trump, was that a Republican or a Democrat that said it? 
Well, that was actually the Republican who said that. And for the second statement who was in support of Donald Trump's war, that was a Democrat who said it. I'm not joking. <laughs> so we have a Republican speaking out unequivocally against Donald Trump's decision and actually being brave. And we have a Democrat who's saying, no, we need to be invested, to put it bluntly. So let's go ahead and reveal their identities. So the Republican that spoke out against Trump's warmongering was... Rand Paul. So yeah, that's really not too surprising. He has been non-interventionist basically throughout his career, so is his dad. And you really, I mean, I think that was probably an easy guess once I told you it was a Republican, but when it comes to the loser Democrat that agrees with Trump here, who could it be? Well, I mean, honestly, it could be anyone. I mean, there's Joe Manchin, there's Dianne Feinstein, Heidi Heitkamp. There's so many choices of Democrats that could possibly have said this, but who was it? Well, it was none other than the leader of the resistance, Tim Kaine. <laughs> so Tim Kaine, someone who ran against Donald Trump, lost to Donald Trump, is now supporting Donald Trump when he claims to be part of the resistance. Hmm, I wonder why it was the case that they lost. Now, this doesn't mean that Republicans are better than Democrats, but if an actual Republican is more liberal on a really important issue than any Democrat, then that means the parties are becoming more and more alike. On foreign policy now, they're almost indistinguishable. They're converging on an issue where they should be diametrically opposed, foreign policy. And not to just harp on Tim Kaine here, he's not alone because there have been many Democrats who support Donald Trump's agenda in Afghanistan. And when it comes to Rand Paul... Well, he's actually pretty much alone here in his disagreement with Donald Trump. Because obviously, with neocons in the Republican Party, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, they all are giving him the, th the thumbs up and they're saying, hey, you know, we, we support your, uh, your war effort in Afghanistan. We are 100% cheerleading uh, U.S. imperialism. So, really, one of the few people to speak out was a Republican which is just crazy to me. So if you are wondering how the Democratic Party was resisting Donald Trump, well, they're not resisting him. They are, in fact, greenlighting more foreign policy blunders abroad. And if Democrats are still wondering why turnout is so low and why their base typically doesn't like to come out to support them, this is it right here. You're not resisting Donald Trump, nor are you offering us any real alternative. We've seen now three different administrations across both parties, and there's been continuity with respect to foreign policy. So no matter which party we vote for, we still get the same foreign policy. The only differences, perhaps, would have been Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul. So this, you know, I wanted to share these statements because it should never be the case that any Republican is more liberal than a Democrat on foreign policy. The Democratic Party, you know, they're supposed to be the anti-war party. They're supposed to be on the side of voters who, by and large, disapprove of the war in Afghanistan, but they're not. In fact, they kind of like that Donald Trump is choosing to ramp up the Afghanistan war. And this is sickening. This is exactly why 
People don't like the two-party system and people are changing their party affiliation to independent because neither party represents what we want. We want you to get out of these countries, but yet both parties are hell-bent on staying in. And at this point, you could vote for a Republican or a Democrat. Most likely, nothing's going to change with regard to foreign policy. And that is just, that's the antithesis of democracy because you're supposed to re represent the people and they're not doing that. Since the horrifying neo-Nazi and white supremacist rally took place in Charlottesville, Virginia, the identities of multiple participants have been discovered. And now that they've been identified, they're speaking out and they're choosing really to play the victim. They're saying, look, even though I marched in lockstep with neo-Nazis and white supremacists, I'm not as bad as the media made me seem. It was on the front page of The Guardian and my heart sank. Peter Siviatanovich is a white nationalist born and raised in Reno. He says he was letting out some of his anger during a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia when this picture was taken. But now he asks himself why. I give no excuse for that photograph. That is clearly me. There was a heat of the moment type thing is, you know, the torches were lit and there was Antifa there. There were lots of cameras and that emotion I was starting to really build up. Siviatanovich says he went to the rally partly to protest the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee. I think that statue remaining would be the best way for people to always remember their history, the good and the bad. He says he's had several death threats since the protest. He admits walking shoulder to shoulder with neo-Nazis, Klansmen and other white supremacist groups reflects on him, but says he doesn't identify with them. We do not accept national socialism, we do not accept fascism, we do not accept Klansmen. We're purely identitarian. Uh, you know, that symbol is not a symbol of racism. And while you might associate pro-white with racism, he says they're two different things. And I hope people acknowledge that, you know, being a part of the alternative right does not make me an evil Nazi, and that, you know, being pro-white right now is, is dangerous. And I, being pro-white, doesn't mean I'm anti anyone else. This guy's an idiot. Think about what he's saying. Hey guys, I, I know that you saw me marching shoulder to shoulder with neo-Nazis and white supremacists, but I assure you, I am not a racist person. I don't have a racist bone in my body. <laughs> <laughs> As Judge Judy would say, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. Because regardless, if you you didn't want to appear racist well marching with white supremacists and neo-nazis is certainly one way to um raise our red flags with respect to whether or not you're racist now i obviously don't condone violence against these individuals certainly he said that he received death threats now he hasn't provided evidence that that's the case but if he has then certainly that's something that i don't condone and i hope that people would not threaten these individuals and even though i don't condone violence i do think that it's important for us to speak out against their harmful hateful ideology now he states here that quote being pro-white doesn't mean i'm anti anyone else but the problem however is that you're calling for a white ethno state that's inherently racist in fact that's genocidal and this protest wasn't about the statue of robert e lee who was a horrible human being who owned and beat slaves that tried to escape the point of the rally was to unite the right that's what you guys called it meaning that you want the republican party to adopt a more explicit white nationalist platform and become more overtly racist and this march was supposed to be a show of strength for them so what's funny to me is that you have these guys who are being identified playing the victim 
Um, they're using identity politics. I mean, if you ask me, it sounds like they're a bunch of SJWs, which obviously I'm sure they're against. But let's take a closer look at what these snowflakes were chanting. So they're chanting, Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil, um, which is basically a direct nod to Nazi Germany. They're carrying torches, which is a nod to the Ku Klux Klan, and this guy's claiming that they're not racist. Yeah. Now, let's see what another one of these Nazi snowflakes had to say who was identified. Raw Story explains, according to the Livingston County News, Jared Kuhn was filmed on Friday and Saturday last week by a BBC documentary crew as he carried a torch on the University of Virginia campus and chanted Nazi slogans and marched with the KKK and neo-Nazis the following day. Kuhn says he's not a racist, but that he traveled the nearly 500 miles from Honeye Falls to Charlottesville to protest the removal of a Confederate monument to General Robert E. Lee from Charlottesville's Emancipation Park. So we have another one here. He swears he's not a racist, guys. I mean, he only flew 500 miles to protest the removal of a statue of a Confederate Army general who owned slaves and then beat those slaves when they tried to escape, and he also was chanting neo-Nazi slogans. I mean, what's racist about that? <laughs> I mean, these guys... <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's just a joke at this point. So these idiots are either dumb or disingenuous, but I'd like to give them a little bit more credit. I think they actually know why they were there, and I think that they know that they were marching in lockstep with neo-Nazis and Klan members. But now that they were discovered, well, now they wanted to do damage control and say, well, we're not racist. See, the reason why... The Ku Klux Klan wore hoods is because they didn't want to be identified. They didn't want to face these social repercussions um, afterwards. But you guys decided that, you know, you wanted to be brave and courageous enough and show just how big of a crowd you were uh, and march without masks. But now that people are discovering who you are, you don't get to play the victim and pretend like you're not a racist. So the question is, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation about this event. What is it that they were actually about what do they represent so for that i think that you can get an accurate description of what the goal was by going to what christopher cantwell has to say who is one of the neo-nazi organizers of this event he assured us that the goal of this protest wasn't to do violence in fact they were trying to be peaceful and non-violent so here's a video of him explaining how they were definitely trying to be peaceful even though their side killed someone <laughs> <coughs> Looks like I played the wrong clip there. Okay, so this is the actual clip where he talks about how nonviolent they really were, and then he immediately contradicts himself. I want to be peaceful. I want to be law-abiding, okay? That was the whole entire point of this. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful. And I, I've been engaged in violence. I have. There's, there's no question about it. And 
I, I've been engaged in violence. I have. There's, there's no question about it. I've been engaged in violence. I have. There's, there's no question about it. I want to be peaceful. I want to be law-abiding. I've, I've been engaged in violence. I have. There's, there's no question about it. And I, and I, and I've done nothing to hide that. But it was done in defense of myself and others. We're not non-violent. We'll fucking kill these people if we have to. So he claims that their goal was to be peaceful, and they only resort to violence as a means of self-defense. But rest assured that that's bullshit. He only said that after he received backlash and learned that there were four warrants out for his arrest. So you heard at the end of the clip there, he said, quote, we're not nonviolent. We'll fucking kill these people if we have to. And besides that part of the clip there that I showed you, just that small snippet, there were other instances where he made it very clear that they were willing to get violent if need be. Hey, you we can remember to make white thing. people were capable of violence. I didn't say capable. Of course we're capable. I'm carrying a pistol. I go to the gym all the time. I'm trying to make myself more capable of violence. I mean, someone died. I think that a lot more people are going to die before we're done here, frankly. So they're trying to make themselves more capable of violence. And in response to Heather Heyer's death, he said, quote, I think that a lot more people are going to die before we're done here, frankly. I think that a lot more people are going to die before we're done here, frankly. What do you think that means? That means that, yes, we will be back and we will be doing more violence. And once he started to receive backlash and national coverage, this is what he had to say. <clears throat> <clears throat> So this is what I really want to stress. These individuals, all the people who attended the Charlottesville protest, the Unite the Right rally, they're neo-Nazis. And it is incumbent upon us as progressives to speak out the loudest and denounce what they have to say. And I know that to a lot of people that sounds, that sounds dumb because nobody's in favor of Nazism and fascism, right? Well, sure, it may still be socially unacceptable to be a neo-Nazi, but these types of hateful ideas have the tendency to spread like the plague. And we have proof of that because The Hill reports 9% of Americans said holding neo-Nazi or white supremacist views is acceptable, according to a new Washington Post ABC News poll released Monday. 9%. That is terrifying and shocking. Nearly 1 in 10 people thinks that neo-Nazi views are acceptable. So that news right there should shake everyone to their core. There should be no more denying whether or not these people were neo-Nazis. Regardless, they want a white ethnostate, and they're marching with some people who self-identify as neo-Nazis, and certainly they are not sing, uh, marching with members of the Klan. So you can try to frame it any way you want to, but they're racist neo-Nazis, and that's terrifying. Now, it may seem like these neo-Nazis are just a small fringe portion of the country, but let me remind you that the Nazi party came to power in Germany when nobody expected their views to catch on. In fact, the Nazi party only received just over 2% of the vote in the 1928 election. And subsequently, they got more and more electoral support in each election. So during times of austerity, when citizens are economically deprived, they're especially prone to radicalization, which is why we need to be especially vigilant now with 
how much income and wealth inequality we have in the country because people are looking for an answer. And if they think Nazism can get them out of poverty or make them feel a little bit better and, you know, scapegoat someone for their economic issues, then they might be inclined to join. Certainly more people will be more inclined to join than you think. So we have to take this seriously. Now, the question that is really important is what do we do? How do we combat Nazism? Well, we counter their use of free speech by exercising our own free speech rights because violence is absolutely not the answer. And I'll say it again, violence is never acceptable because if we resort to violence, then we become what we hate. And when we resort to violence, we embolden these idiots and allow them to play the victims even more than they already have. So the way that you counter hate speech is with non-hateful speech. And I know that this works because John Cooper reports that after alt-right organizers saw huge counter-protests in Boston, they've canceled 67 America First rallies scheduled in 36 states. And these so-called America First rallies and so-called free speech rallies, it's not really about free speech. That's a misnomer. That's not an accurate descriptor. These are rallies in support of white nationalism, neo-Nazis, and white supremacy. So we can't ignore the threat that these Nazis pose, but in resisting them, it's really important that we do not resort to violence either. We just have to speak out against them and denounce them. It's really that simple and it works. So there's a lot of neoliberal hacks that constantly defend the Democratic Party establishment's corruption. And since they don't actually have a cohesive counter argument to progressives uh, who are basically contending that we think the party should move in a more grassroots oriented direction. Well, what do they do instead? Well, when they're not hiding behind identity politics, they simply try to smear progressives and label us as racist, sexist, Bernie bros. But a new smear they really like to use against progressives is alt-left. So for example, Joy Reid tweeted that alt-left is the perfect descriptor for progressives. And she recently dismissed criticism Kamala Harris received from progressives like Numiki Konst, Roseanne DeMauro, and Winnie Wong because they're, quote, alt-left activists. So since they're supposedly alt-left, whatever that means, you know, what they have to say just doesn't matter, so you can disregard it. But Joy Reid isn't alone because her good friend Joan Walsh recently argued that the alt-left and alt-right were actually converging, perhaps a reference to horseshoe theory, which is popular among neoliberal hacks, and also Joan Walsh referred to the alt-left as liars. Now, they're both not alone here because Neera Tandon and other neoliberal talking heads also use this term to describe progressives, but not as much as Joy Reid and Joan Walsh. Now, the question is, what exactly does alt-left mean? Well, the answer is nothing. It means nothing because alt-right is a term that white supremacists use to rebrand themselves and make them more appealing to ordinary Americans, whereas alt-left is a term that neoliberal hacks use to discredit progressives and equate them with alt-right people who are white supremacists. So again, they're comparing white supremacists and neo-Nazis with progressives who simply want Medicare for all and want economic equality. They want you to think that by calling progressives alt-left, well, maybe they're akin to the alt-right because they already call us racist, sexist, Bernie bros. So, I mean, of course it's the case that they may be a lot like the alt-right as well, according to them. So, this alt-left term is nothing more than another disingenuous attempt to smear progressives, but recently, to the dismay of neoliberal hacks, 
someone that they hate decided to appropriate their term. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Alt-left. So by punching left and deciding to immorally smear progressives, Joy Reid and Joan Walsh just handed Donald Trump this huge gift. He was given a new way to smear progressives and equate them to the alt-right, who is an increasing wing of the Republican Party. Now, if you were expecting Joy Reid and Joan Walsh to get away with this, well, you probably weren't alone because they constantly berate progressives all the time and smear progressives, and they're never called out by anyone else in the mainstream media. However, recently, someone else who is another pundit actually decided to call them out. Finally, the Democratic Party's civil war. You may recall that during last year's presidential primaries, there was a battle between centrist Democrats led by Hillary Clinton and progressives led by Bernie Sanders. The Sanders movement fought for universal health care and free education. The Clinton Democrats defended free market liberalism, even though it works for an increasingly small number of people. During the fight, several prominent Clinton Democrats smeared the Sanders crowd, calling them rabid and unhinged Bernie bros. Some Clinton Democrats even referred to these progressives as alt-left. It's an insult, unlike alt-right, which white supremacists coined to give their old movement a modern edge. Also, unlike alt-right, alt-left does not strive for an ethno-state. It is explicitly anti-racist. The alt-left simply demands the redistribution of wealth. And yet, some Democrats who feel threatened by that have promoted the canard that the alt-left as a group is now looking for violence. It may not be surprising that President Trump would label the left wing as a group of hooligans, but when Democrats buy into the term, they cause real damage to their party, and they do the right a favor. Instead of labeling progressive activists with a slur, centrist Democrats would do better to own up to their own failures in language and in policy. That was, <laughs> that was absolutely excellent. So that right there was David Schuster, who is a former MSNBC host, and everything he said there was spot on, but that wasn't all. So he actually took to Twitter to call on Joan Walsh and Joy Reid to, quote, apologize for smearing progressives with the alt-left slur. Now, Joy Reid responded by saying, Dear, wake me up when you take issue with those calling anyone who won't worship with them neoliberals and attacking people, especially women of color. Okay, first of all, this gets under my skin. Neoliberal is a real word. Alt-left is not a real word. One's a real word that is not a smear. It's just a descriptor that's actually quite accurate for you. And another is a smear. Alt-left, which means nothing. So you can't equate the two and say that what we're doing is akin to you smearing us. Are you not someone who constantly stands up for the Democratic Party and defends their push for free market capitalistic policies? Because if so, you're a neoliberal. That's all that means. Neoliberal is only a smear to you because it's grown increasingly unpopular since neoliberalism has led to economic inequality. But since now that word has negative connotations, well, you think that you can just chalk it up as a smear when it's not a smear. If you don't want to be called a neoliberal, then start arguing for more socialist-oriented policies. Until then, we will continue to refer to you as a neoliberal, Joy, because that's exactly what you are. It's an accurate descriptor, unlike the term you made up to smear progressives, which means nothing. Now, of course, Joan Walsh also responded to David, saying, David, you don't get it. Neither Joy nor I 
have to take orders from you. I know you think that's your role, though. A lot of men do. <laughs> so predictably, Joan Walsh implied that he was sexist, and Joy Reid implied that he was racist. <laughs> so this is exactly what I expected from them. I, I, honestly, I would expect nothing more from Joan Walsh and Joy Reid. But like a lot of us, David Schuster is on to their bullshit. And the next clip is just glorious because he decided to actually call them out on their bullshit. Last week, I noted that centrist Democratic pundits who supported Hillary Clinton smeared progressives with the slur alt-left long before President Donald Trump ever did. On social media, one of those pundits suggested my criticism was driven by sexism. The other suggested it was racism. That should tell you all you need to know about Joan Walsh and Joy Reid. Instead of acknowledging the failures of the neoliberalism they support or addressing progressive alternatives, these pundits deflect and engage in identity politics, and it's shameful. Let this be a lesson to all progressives. Many corporate Democratic pundits do not care about your interests or policies. They do not want to acknowledge economic realities or address the hard truths about free market liberalism. Instead, they want to keep the Democratic establishment going. And they will hide behind race and gender if that will keep any criticism at bay. Beware of these Democrats who say they want to help the less fortunate. They actually care most about protecting themselves. Damn. <laughs> so look, this is really, I'm really enjoying this because this is really, I think, the first time that Joan Walsh and Joy Reid has been called out by anyone. I mean, those of us on, you know, uh, YouTube, David Dole, myself, Kyle Kalinske, we call out Joan Walsh and Joy Reid regularly, but no one of this level has actually called them out. I mean, David Schuster was a former MSNBC host. So the fact that he's actually speaking out with his large platform, this really does shed light on their slimy tactics. But he still wasn't done because he tweeted this video to both Joy Reid and Joan Walsh, calling their quote, deflection shameful and absurd. To which Joan responded saying, David, exclamation, go to bed, this is silly. You can't resurrect your career on our backs. Although it seems like he kind of did. But he ended with Joan, my career is great. Global channel, real news, though I'm lowering myself to mention you, but keep deflecting, makes my point. You know, I don't like to use this term, but I'm going to use this term. Joan Walsh and Joy Reid got owned by David Schuster. <laughs> and again, I really tried to refrain, but I don't think there's any way to describe this situation. He handed them their ass on a silver platter. And all the smears that they've been using against progressive now, progressives for years, it came back to bite them directly in the ass. And it was, it was so glorious. So this is definitely my favorite story of the week. Because David Schuster, who knew that he was such a savage? I mean, <laughs> he called them on their bullshit once and for all. Um, and look, really, they should apologize for using the term alt-left, but they were not apologetic whatsoever and they are helping donald trump when they are supposedly the resistance to donald trump so i just find it hilarious but look this isn't the first time that donald trump has appropriated a term by a neoliberal because hillary clinton was the individual that first coined the term fake news and guess who uses it now more than anybody trump and you could bet that that wasn't the last time he used the alt-left slur 
against anyone on the left he dislikes. So congratulations to Joan Walsh and Joy Reid. You gave Donald Trump a gigantic gift when you're supposed to be the resistance. But nonetheless, I'm just glad that finally someone with a big enough voice in media decided to call you out on your nonsense. So, needless to say, the DNC is in pretty bad shape right now, and this is because they have no real message, and as a result, they're not able to appeal to voters, and they can't win elections, and worse for them is that they even have a large portion of their own base that just outright hates them progressives. And this is because they want nothing to do with progressives. In fact, they voted down a ban on lobbyist contributions to the DNC because uh, they thought that they would be more successful at raising money and catering to their large multinational corporation and billionaire donors than actual progressives. And also, we hate them because they rigged the primary in 2016. So there's a ton of reasons why the DNC is in bad shape right now. Almost all of it is self-inflicted. Uh, actually, all of it is self-inflicted, let me be clear. And they're just an embarrassment. But it gets even worse for the DNC because unlike what they expected, uh, there's another portion of the population that is now jumping ship. They're large <laughs> billionaire donors and multinational corporations. So according to The Hill, they report that months of post-election malaise hamstrung the Democratic National Committee's fundraising over the first six months of 2017, creating a serious money gap with Republicans and raising questions about Democrats' ability to take advantage of opportunities in the 2018 midterm elections. The DNC raised $38.2 in the first half of the year, compared with the Republican National committee's 75.4 million haul during that period, a 37.2 million difference. As of June 30th, the RNC has almost 45 million in the bank, while the DNC has just under 7.5 million along with 3 million in debt. Many Democrats are frustrated by the sluggish fundraising pace, which comes even as President Trump's sagging approval rating drives Democratic outrage across the country. Perez noted that the party is still in the process of staffing up in a statement to The Hill. At the DNC, we are still building up our team, including hiring fundraising staff and making sure every aspect of our organization is moving in lockstep, he said. We're confident that our team will raise the resources needed as we head into 2018 and beyond. It's deeply problematic, and it's because our party leadership has to be dragged kicking and screaming by the base to lead an opposition, Democratic strategist Christy Setzer said, urging Democrats to ramp up the pressure on Trump. After a full-court press meant to raise hundreds of millions for Hillary Clinton's campaign and allied groups, an effort most Democrats expected would end with her in the White House, major donors admit that they are tired. So, this is incredibly embarrassing for the Democratic Party, and it's especially embarrassing for the new DNC chair, Tom Perez. And in fact, if he doesn't turn this around soon, I wouldn't be surprised if the Democratic Party's biggest donors who are sticking with them and some party insiders don't start calling for his resignation because you, you just can't keep having bad fundraising months over and over and over. He's proving to be an incompetent leader. Now, one thing that's clear to me after reading this article is that they still don't really know why they can't raise any money. To the strategist who thinks that the Democratic Party needs to focus more on Trump, you're not a strategist. You need to quit your job and go into some other sector because <laughs> that's one of the most clueless statements I've ever heard a strategist make. You are really dumb, for real. They are exclusively focusing on Trump. One of the messages they floated uh, for their new slogan was, uh, vote Democrats 2018, 
Well, because look at the other guys. I mean, are you kidding me right now? They stand for nothing. They don't have a message, and because they thought that they could raise enough money exclusively through their billionaire corporate donors, well, the base now knows that they're not looking out for them, and they're not going to give you any money. But Tom Perez knows that he's got to turn this around if he wants to keep his job, so I mean, he's starting to get really desperate, and it's starting to show. So according to The Hill, President Obama will be re-emerging on the political scene this fall, and quote, he is likely to take on fundraising, for example, something he has done for the Democratic National Committee and the National Democratic Redistricting Committee since leaving office. So <laughs> they're so desperate that they're trying to force a former president out of retirement so that way he can beg for donations to uh, his billionaire donors, presumably, because he certainly delivered. And since he has rapport with those rich people, you know, they think that he can be successful and boost their fundraising efforts. How pathetic. That is, that's just one of the most pathetic things ever. But if you thought that that was the most pathetic aspect of their desperation, it gets worse because the DNC literally sent out these scary looking letters, presumably to trick people into opening them out of fear that an overdue bill would be headed to collections. This is real. And on that envelope, it claimed to have come from the finance department and it reads final notice in gigantic scary letters, but in smaller letters at the top, it's clear there that it came from the Democratic National Committee. So they have no shame whatsoever. No shame. Tom Perez should resign just based on this because what they were trying to do with that final notice was uh, they wanted to strike fear into the hearts of people who received that letter and get them to actually open it. It's such a shady tactic that they use to manipulate people. And look, if you're a poor person, if you've struggled to pay your bills by seeing those words final notice, even though they put Democratic National Committee on there just for some plausible deniability, that will strike fear into the hearts of anyone who struggled to pay their bills, to pay their mortgage, to pay for water and electricity. And that's all they're going to see. They're just going to open the bill or what looks like a bill frantically. And it's, it's so pathetic. It's so disgusting that they would exploit the fears that poor people have that that already are struggling to pay their bills and making them think that they're overdue. What a disgusting tactic. The DNC should be absolutely ashamed of themselves for doing this. I mean, who greenlit this? Whoever did needs to just resign. That's just, that's a shame. That's a new low. I mean, they've shown us that they are willing to stoop to any level to get money. But you idiots wouldn't have had to do this. You wouldn't have had so much trouble fundraising if you didn't choose to abandon your base for your corporate donors. If you, if you recall, back when Tom Perez was first elected as the DNC chair back in February, they immediately rejected a ban on lobbyist contributions. So what that told us was that you don't want anything to do with us. You don't want our money because your corporate donors are going to take care of you. And now that your corporate donors are not taking care of you because you are incompetent and you can't win, now... Since we still won't give you money, you're trying to scare us and trick us into giving you money. It's absolutely unacceptable. So look, you don't get to have it both ways. Either you stop asking us for money and stop trying to trick your voters into giving you money, or you swear off all your billionaire and multinational corporation donors or give back the money that you took from them. You have chosen time and again, and you've really reiterated this in your actions, that you don't want anything to do with ordinary people. So you should be ashamed of yourself that you would even ask them for money, and you should be even more ashamed of yourself that you're willing to trick them and get them to 
be afraid that maybe they missed one of their bills and it was going to be headed to collections. I mean, shame on you. It's just despicable. The fact that I've been disappointed with Elizabeth Warren really has been no secret if you've been watching the show for a while. I mean, ever since she decided to endorse Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, I mean, I was crushed. And there were millions of progressives who were crushed at her decision. I mean, Elizabeth, you were the first woman that ever broke my heart. So, <laughs> you know, it, it really sucked for a lot of us who had faith that she would do the right thing and endorse Bernie Sanders. But putting all of that aside, it really does seem as though the old Elizabeth Warren that we knew and loved is coming back in a really big way. And so much so that she's even starting to piss off the Democratic Party establishment. So as you all know, she recently spoke at Netroots Nation. I'm sure a lot of you have already seen this clip, but for those of you who hadn't, Here's a snippet of it. The Democratic Party isn't going back to the days of welfare reform and the crime bill. It is not going to happen. Are we clear on that? Yeah. We are not going back to the days of being lukewarm on choice. No, we're not. Going back to the days when universal health care was something Democrats talked about on the campaign trail, but were too chicken to fight for after they got elected. And we are definitely not going back to the days when a Democrat who wanted to run for a seat in Washington first had to grovel on Wall Street. Nope, we're not going back. Are headed forward. We are looking ahead, and we will not, we shall not, we must not allow anyone to turn back the clock. That right there is exactly why a lot of progressives are talking about this speech. Because for once, it really feels like, for or for once in a while, certainly, she's really standing up for everything that she believes in. And because she decided to actually be courageous and speak up on the issues that are important to her, well, she actually received a lot of backlash from the establishment. So, according to Amy Parnes of The Hill, she reports moderate Democrats are pushing back at Senator Elizabeth Warren's view that progressives have taken control of the party. We can't take the House back with progressives running in swing states, said former Representative Ellen Tosher, a surrogate for 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, who is leading the fight back California super PAC aimed at winning back seven House seats in the Golden State. Interviews with Democratic strategists, donors, and organizers from across the country revealed deep disagreement with Warren's premise that progressives make up the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. The Obama and Clinton supporters said they have grown tired of having to deal with fighting over progressivism and 1990s-era battles over former President Bill Clinton's work on welfare and criminal justice reform, which were campaign issues last year and subjects of criticism by Warren just last week. I'm wary of pendulum policy. Politics, one former senior administration official to Obama said, We can't whiplash the country. Tasher called it a tired old debate, and it's certainly not going to help us win, she said. Our party should be looking to expand the tent. If we divide ourselves, we're doing our opponents' jobs for them. Democratic strategist Jim Manley, who served as spokesman to then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, said while support has grown for many progressive issues, including a single-payer health care system, the party is in the midst of a rebuilding process and trying to figure out its next steps. I don't think we as a party can be 
be casting too many people aside, Manly said. We need to figure out how to grow and bring everybody together. I realize that's happy talk, but that's the reality. When you start talking about purity tests, that's a little problematic. Warren's remarks at the conference in Atlanta last weekend sparked an instant headline from the New York Times, saying she was taking aim at moderates. And while she didn't mention either of the Clintons by name, the Times wrote, Miss Warren sent an unambiguous message that she believes the Clinton effort to push Democrats towards the political center should be relegated to history. Brad Bannon, a Democratic strategist, defended Warren, saying she's right about progressives being at the epicenter of the party. They are the dominant voice in the party, Bannon said. So at least there's one strategist that seems to have a head on his shoulders <laughs> that stood up for Elizabeth Warren here, and rightfully so. But I want to go back to what former Representative Ellen Tasha said. She states, quote, we can't win the House back with progressives running in swing states. Yes, we can. And in fact, I don't know how you could even say that because we really haven't tried that yet because the party has been constantly moving more and more to the center. And furthermore, you haven't been able to win by running conservatives and moderates in swing states either. And when they argue that we're a big tent party, I mean, the tent has become so big that it doesn't even look like a normal political party anymore. It's just this conglomerate of people, some of which are relatively progressive, actually few, most are moderate, and a substantial portion are just outright conservative. So when you have such diversity in the party and no coherent message, that sends mixed messages to voters, and it's why the base doesn't come out to support you, because you're not really giving them a real alternative. But what Elizabeth Warren is proposing here is an alternative that might actually help you guys win again, because what she is advocating for would energize the base, it would energize independents and get them to register and come out and vote for the Democratic Party. So... The fact that you constantly run moderates and conservatives in swing states, well, your core base is probably thinking, why would I come out to support you and register to vote and stand in line for hours when I'm going to only get screwed over a little bit less if I just let the Republican win? But if you actually give them a reason to come out and support you and unequivocally support Medicare for all and tuition-free colleges and universities and a $15 minimum wage, guess what happens? Those people who would see their lives dramatically improved because of these policies, they would take the time to vote for you, but they just can't get that through their thick skulls. And it is so frustrating to me. Reading this article made me want to bang my head against the computer monitor because it's just so tone deaf and stupid. Not the author, that is. The, what <laughs> The content. Uh, it's, it's so frustrating. The Democratic Party, they don't want to wake up at this point if you don't know what it's going to take to win, then you're never going to know what it's going to take to win. And certainly if they lose in 2018 and 2020, they're going to double down on the same strategy because nothing will get the Democratic Party to actually listen to voters. All they're doing is what their strategists tell them to do. And certainly being a conservative and a moderate is more beneficial to them because it helps them raise more money through their multinational corporate donors and billionaire donors who want tax cuts and policy concessions in exchange for a campaign contribution. So it's just so obnoxious to hear every time somebody says something right. I mean, Elizabeth Warren here, I've been disappointed in her, but certainly she's moving in the right direction here. She gave a fantastic speech and they come out immediately and they shit all over her when she's giving them the recipe for victory. But they just, they either are stupid or they don't care. So they can continue to um, be dense but it's not going to help them if they think that they're going to be electorally successful in a really 
important way where they actually take back control of any house in congress i just can't see it happening unless they dramatically reform and one of them talked about whiplash we can't whiplash the country well with how long we've been moving in the wrong direction then we need something that is really substantial change we need whiplash currently because this incrementalism is not working and it's disenfranchising and demoralizing your base and it's time you actually stand up for what we tell you to stand up for because we're the voters listen to us but they're not listening so you know what elizabeth warren needs to ignore all of this and just continue doing what she's doing because if she wants to run in 2020 this is how you get progressives to come back to you who uh felt betrayed as far as we know, Bernie Sanders is planning to introduce his Medicare for All bill this September, and as a result, he is currently gearing up to introduce it by generating a lot of excitement. So what he's doing is he's holding town halls with John Conyers, who, as you all know, is the sponsor of the House version of Medicare for All. He's also touring the Midwest in order to talk about Medicare for All. Uh, he's also talking about other issues, but certainly what he's doing now is generating a lot of excitement in an effort to ramp up support for this bill, but he has a new argument for single payer that I haven't heard before, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. So this is what he states. In an op-ed for Forbes, Bernie Sanders argues, let's be clear, not only is our dysfunctional healthcare system causing unnecessary suffering and financial stress for millions of low and middle income families, it is also having a very negative impact on our economy and the business community, especially small and medium sized companies. Private businesses spent $637 billion on private health insurance in 2015 and are projected to spend $1.059 trillion in 2025. But it's not just the heavy financial cost of health care that the business community is forced to bear. It is time and energy. Instead of focusing on their core business goals, small and medium-sized businesses are forced to spend an inordinate amount of time, energy, and resources trying to navigate an incredibly complex system in order to get the most cost-effective coverage possible for their employees. It is not uncommon for employers to spend weeks every year negotiating with private insurance companies, filling out reams of paperwork, and switching carriers to get the best deal they can. And more and more, business people are getting tired of it and are asking the simple questions that need to be addressed. Why are employers who do the right thing and provide a strong healthcare benefit package to their employees at a competitive disadvantage with those who don't? Why are some of the largest and most profitable corporations in America, like Walmart, receiving massive subsidies from the federal government because their inadequate benefits force many of their employees to go on Medicaid? Why are most labor disputes in this country centered on health care coverage? Is it good for a company to have employees on the payroll not because they enjoy the work, but because their families need the health insurance the company provides? In my view, health care for all is a moral issue. No American should die or suffer because they lack the funds to get adequate health care. But it is more than that. A Medicare for all single payer system will be good for the economy and the business community. So to me, this really made me excited because you can really tell that he's trying to fine-tune his argument to make it more appealing, and he's also clearly trying to build bridges and form coalitions that will help him get this bill passed. Because if you can get small business owners on board with Medicare for All, then that is huge. I mean, that's a huge boost to this particular movement. So unlike other politicians who say they're for something, Bernie Sanders is not just 
introducing this bill and then running away from it, it's it's clear that he is gearing up to introduce the bill and then fight for it and push for it relentlessly. And that, to me, is important, not just because I think we need Medicare for all, but it also sets up an example for other politicians and that if you actually are fighting for what you believe in, then the people will know that you're fighting for what you believe in. It'll resonate with this. We'll, we'll, view, we'll view you will view you as a more authentic politician, which I think is really important right now because with all these politicians, you see them espousing platitudes. You know, they're they're all rehearsed. They're doing their little stupid fucking thumb thing that just drives me nuts where they kind of put out their their pointer and their thumb and they, they point forward like this. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. We have a bunch of fake phonies in Congress right now and Bernie Sanders is one of the few authentic politicians that actually cares about us and I really do believe that he's pushing for this because he thinks this is a moral issue and now he is really going a step further in reaching out to the business community and making a really coherent and I think strong argument as to why they should get on board with Medicare for all. So this to me is something that is really encouraging and I, I couldn't not share this story with you because I, you know, when, when I saw the headline that he makes the case that Medicare for all is good for business, I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's a no brainer. But the way he really sets it up and lays it out, I mean, you can't be against this because it's it's foolproof. It makes sense. So if you're a business owner, of course you should be on board with Medicare for All because that's an expense that you'll no longer be burdened with. So I absolutely love what he's doing here. And honestly, I didn't think that this would be a strategy he would pursue, but it's just, it's so great. I'm glad he's switching it up. And I hope that he does more to reach out to um, other types of communities and to form different coalitions because the bigger the group that we have that are pushing for this, the better off we'll be and the quicker we'll get it because, you know, Congress, they have a bunch of private insurance companies in their ear. They're lobbying them, but we need as much people as possible. Every single person counts in the fight for Medicare for all. So, you know, let's do it. I I'm really excited. And certainly as soon as he introduces this bill in September, I'm going to look at all of the co-sponsors and any Democrat who doesn't co-sponsor it, I'm going to know that they're a fraud. I'm going to know that they're a phony. You will co-sponsor it, or you can expect a lot of phone calls in September. It's been a little more than half a year since the draft Bernie organization formed, and Bernie Sanders has not yet decided to lead a new people's party. So Nick Branagh, the founder of draft Bernie, along with a few other progressive organizers are now ramping up their campaign to draft Bernie. Uh, and I think this is really exciting. So we have Jimmy Dore, Tim Black, Nick Branagh, and some other people hand-delivering Bernie Sanders a petition with 50,000 progressive and independent signatures urging him to lead a new People's Party. So Michael Sonato of Observer reports, even though Senator Bernie Sanders has embraced his role of outreach chair for the Democratic Party since the 2016 election, many of his supporters have joined a movement to draft him to lead a new political party. Led by Sanders' former national political director, Nick Branagh, who experienced how entrenched the Democratic Party is in corporate money and influence while lobbying superdelegates as part of Sanders' campaign, developed an organization called Draft Bernie in February 2017 
2017. Since the organization's founding, Brenna has organized volunteers and staff across the country to gather signatures for a petition to give to Bernie Sanders that insists he starts a new party. On the weekend of September 8th, the Draft Bernie organization is hosting a People's Convergence Conference in Washington, D.C., where they plan to deliver their petition of 50,000 signatures to Sanders' Senate office, asking him to participate in a town hall focusing on why we should start a new political party. Draft Bernie founder Nick Brenna told The Observer, we'll have the signatures printed and in open top boxes. I've sent the senator a personal message encouraging him to be there to receive the signatures. The signatures represent tens of thousands of invitations to Bernie to attend the town hall the next day with Dr. Cornell West, Kashama Sawant, Jimmy Dore, and me. Brenna continued, the signatures are people of all colors, genders, and ages who donated countless hours and gave funds they often could not spare to Bernie's presidential campaign. Now they are united once more in their conviction that we need a people's party free from corporate and billionaire money. In exchange for all their sacrifice, all they ask of Bernie is that he give them 90 minutes of his time for a conversation about our shared future as a movement and a country. Bernie doesn't have to make any commitments. He just has to come sit down with his hardworking supporters who would like to speak to him. Brenna added, a large majority of Americans support progressive policies like Medicare for All, free public college, and getting money out of politics, but neither major party represents the people on these issues. That's why over the past decades, tens of millions of Americans have left both establishment parties and become independents. Now, there's an ocean of independents far larger than either major party. The question is whether we can unite the Democratic base with the enormous number of independents to form a winning electoral coalition. Bernie has spent the last year trying to unite them inside the Democratic Party with little success. First, Trump beat Hillary, and now Democratic Party affiliation has declined since the general election. The American people are leading the way to an independent alternative. Rather than struggling against the progressive current, we should swim with it and create the major new party that the majority of Americans are calling for. The place to unite Democrats and independents is in a new people's party. Now, understandably so, there's skepticism about whether or not a new party, specifically a people's party, could ever be politically and electorally viable. Uh, and when I spoke with Nick Branagh, the founder of Draft Bernie, I'll link to that uh, interview down below, what little doubts I had were completely rest assured. I mean, I think he did an excellent job at making the case. I mean, this isn't just some half-baked idea. This is a real attempt to launch a brand new political party, and it's rooted in a historical understanding of the factors that are actually needed to form a new party in a two-party system. And a lot of the frustration that we saw before the Republican Party replaced the Whigs is also present right now. So we have a unique opportunity in history to really capitalize on the frustration with both parties and try to form a people's party that wouldn't necessarily compete alongside the Republican and Democratic parties, but would replace the Democratic Party, uh, or ideally even the Republican Party, and have the Democrats just become the new de facto conservative party since they're already there. So I, I absolutely am in support of this idea, um, and I think that we've got to give it a try. At this point, we have to try everything. But of course, you know, as usual, there are some people, including progressives, that are already poo-pooing on this event. And, you know, they don't like the idea of drafting Bernie because Bernie Sanders, of course, has made political miscalculations. He went on the DNC unity tour, he endorsed Hillary Clinton, he drones on about Russia, but even though the name is Draft Bernie, this organization is about policy ideas, which is why it's called the People's Party. We're not trying to draft Bernie Sanders to get him to form the Bernie Sanders Party. We're trying to draft him to form the People's Party. And since he still champions a lot of the ideas, irrespective of the political miscalculations he's made, 
I think that we need to do that. He's he's talking about things that are important. Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, uh, tuition-free public colleges and universities. So here's what I have to say to those people because my patience is, uh, it's running out. How about this? Why don't you propose some type of alternative to actually make progress and affect change and get the policies that we all want codified into law? But until then, if you have nothing to add to the conversation, if all you can do is criticize those of us who are fighting to affect change, even if you disagree with our strategy, propose something yourself otherwise stop complaining because you're demoralizing the progressive movement because we're fighting for policies we're trying to be proactive and we don't need negativity we don't need you shitting all over everything that we're trying to accomplish here and i think we absolutely should support the efforts of nick branna jimmy Dore, and tim black because they're they're doing everything they can so i just i hate the negativity it's self-defeating it's just so frustrating and it's bad for the movement so i i love this not to rant but uh, I, I love what they're doing. I think this is a great idea, and I would love to have Bernie Sanders attend this town hall. I think it'd be great. One of the biggest issues of our time, undoubtedly, is net neutrality. I mean, grassroots activists have been fighting relentlessly to stop the likes of Comcast, Verizon, AT&T from killing the internet. Basically, they want to strip freedom away from the internet and they want to be able to throttle bandwidth to websites they don't like and extort smaller businesses and tell them that if they want the traffic to flow freely to their website, well, they're going to have to pay a fee. So we're trying to stop this. And what's funny is we have this battle going on now. It's been going on for months. And the mainstream media has been completely silent. Even the so-called liberal network, MSNBC, hasn't said much of anything about net neutrality. Now, at first, since they're the liberal network, the supposedly liberal network, that might seem odd, but it's only odd until you follow the money. Because MSNBC's parent company, of course, is Comcast, which is one of the main companies lobbying to kill off net neutrality. So if you're wondering why the so-called liberal network is silent on one of the biggest political issues of our time, well, it's because MSNBC's parent company has a vested interest in destroying internet freedom. I mean, there's literally millions, potentially billions of dollars to be made here, not to mention their ability to censor content that they don't like. So MSNBC gains nothing from covering net neutrality, even if grassroots activists are currently fighting for it. But to my surprise, MSNBC actually featured a segment on net neutrality. And hey, guess what? At first, it was pretty good. I was I was really shocked. I was taken aback. But towards the end of said segment, I mean, it took a turn for the worst. It nearly made my head explode. It was so ridiculous. So they started out with a pretty solid segment explaining what net neutrality is. And then the hosts completely botched it. So let's take a look. Net neutrality says the internet needs to be just like electricity. Once you pay to get online, you can do whatever you want. Obviously, many companies and customers like net neutrality. The proponents of net neutrality are a wide bunch. A lot of internet activists who really care about the principles behind an open net, joined by a lot of companies that also care. Big tech companies like Amazon or Netflix don't want anyone to be restricted from accessing their products. And you don't want to have to pay more to get that access. But small companies also rely on net neutrality. The big entertainment companies like Netflix could afford to pay the internet service providers to get premier special access. The problem is for the little guys and the startups. If they can't afford to pay for special premier access and the user doesn't find it or finds that their content is very slow, then they're not going to succeed. 
So who doesn't support net neutrality? Well, the companies who provide the internet connection. Comcast, parent company of NBC Universal, is one of the top three internet providers in the U.S. The opponents of net neutrality are primarily internet service providers who argue that without being able to maximize the profits of providing internet service, they won't expand and improve and speed up the service. For their part, internet providers say they've always favored an open and free internet. What they oppose is increased government regulation. The real solution to net neutrality is competition. In the short term, however, most of us are stuck with one or two internet providers, and there isn't competition. Thus, net neutrality advocates are asking for protection from the government, at least for a while. So virtually nobody says that there shouldn't be any uh, you know, regulation of, of uh, the internet or internet providers. I guess the argument for the internet providers is that they went and built this thing. They put the infrastructure and they built the highway, um, you know, and, and everybody else gets to use it for free. Uh, they, they want to be able to make enough money off of it, so they have to cut some deals to do that. Yes, but the argument, you know, Jeff Jarvis talks about competition, breeds innovation, and that's great. But if it's all about competition, the biggest guy will always win. And if this is about innovation and entrepreneurship, you've got to leave space for that new to guy to get in the game. Otherwise, Amazon and Google will control the world. And, you know, look, we've got an ongoing de debate on all sorts of levels about what amount of regulation is correct for the government. And keep in mind that this conversation has been evolving over more than 100 years. And now you've got the Internet. The government's not up to speed on figuring That's out how to how to regulate. So it. important. So for the Googles of the world who are saying we want this regulation light, one of the issues is government just hasn't caught up with technology. No one has, given how fast things right. have Right. There moved. are 23-year-olds inventing some of these fantastic websites and these, these apps, and the government is still thinking about the way it applies uh, <laughs> trade regulations when one, you know, when Staples and Office Depot want to merge. So it's complicated. It is important to remember, this isn't entirely black and white. Generally speaking, even the internet providers say they're okay with a light touch in regulation, and their argument is that this entire internet has grown with relatively light touch regulation. Why do you want to throw more onto it? And the counter argument is the internet's really grown a lot. There are some issues. We need to regulate it. You've got to regulate it. Problems haven't come yet, but guess what? They always do. That conversation at the end of the clip there was atrocious. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it was... It, I've probably never seen a more asinine conversation on the mainstream media in recent history. Because that, I mean, not only did it seem overly contrived, but they just completely misrepresented the issue. And they framed net neutrality, even after it was explained to them in the infographic. Uh, they, they represented net neutrality, basically, um, as the government regulating the internet, when that's not what it's about. We're not asking the government to regulate the internet. We're asking the government to regulate internet providers so that way they can't fuck up the internet that's what this is about and the host said quote the government's not up to speed on figuring out how to regulate the internet and one of the issues is government just hasn't caught up with technology do you even know what you're talking about do you even hear how you sound because at first that same host who said that actually made a pretty cogent point about how you know this is about winners and losers and then she says that what are you thinking? You are really dumb. So needless to say, this segment made me so angry because they're trying to frame this as a really complex, convoluted, and even esoteric issue when that's really not the case. It's actually 
pretty simple. We're not asking the government to regulate the internet. We're asking them to regulate internet companies. We're calling for the same internet freedom that's been the norm for decades. And one of the hosts ended this segment by hilariously pretending to be a proponent of net neutrality, saying, well, you've got to regulate it. Problems haven't come up yet, but they always do. Oh, really? Is that so? Problems haven't come up yet? In 2014, Comcast tried to kill Netflix. They started throttling the bandwidth to Netflix, so that way when you tried to watch a show, it, you just see this buffering symbol over and over to the point where, for me myself, I literally gave up. I was trying to watch The Office because it's a fantastic show, and I just said, fuck it, because they are clearly, something's wrong. I, and, you know, at first I thought it was my internet, but clearly, you know, upon learning, it was Comcast. So they tried to do that, and once Netflix uh, paid them a fee, then all of a sudden, their <laughs> bandwidth to Netflix is faster than ever. And furthermore, Verizon is already trying to push the legal limits of net neutrality because they are prioritizing their own video streaming service above the likes of Netflix and Hulu because they're saying if you use our Verizon player uh, and watch shows that way, then that's not going to count towards your data. But if you use Netflix, then that will go towards your data. So they're really trying to prioritize their own content. So we already know exactly what they're trying to do because they're doing it right now. They're trying to make it so that way they make more money over the internet's freedom. And that's not what we want. We want the internet to remain free and open. So this discussion was so ignorant, and I'd usually argue that with this level of ignorance, these two hosts are just misinformed, but they're not. They know exactly what they're doing. They're tools. They are tools for Comcast. They're bosses. So in the one rare instance where the mainstream media actually finally covered net neutrality, they completely botched it. But I mean, that was intentional. It's not as if they, they tried to do a good segment on net neutrality and then they messed it up. They knew what they were doing. They were shamelessly doing propaganda on behalf of the internet service providers, which, you know, conspicuously enough, just so happens to own the network that they work for. So this, this was so frustrating because a lot of people now who are liberal, who watch MSNBC and think that, you know, they have good intentions are going to be misinformed about net neutrality when we need everyone on our side fighting because this affects everybody. Again, I've said this once, I'll say it again. Unless you are the CEOs of AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, you have nothing to gain from losing net neutrality. This is a fight that involves all of us. This is about more than the internet. Since the internet has become so integral to democracy uh, and organizing and grassroots, you know, uh, pressure on politicians and companies, this is about democracy. So this is a huge issue. And MSNBC, they messed it up so much. And I, I was just so frustrated about this segment. It really pissed me off, but I don't have to tell you that. And um, yeah. They fucked it up big time. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, thank you so much for watching. And I want to send a special thank you, of course, to all of the Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you guys help the show not just to survive, but to thrive. And with this episode talking about neo-Nazis um, and war, <laughs> we're going to really need Patreon because I'm pretty sure that uh, YouTube is going to break their demonetization button. So look, thank you so much. This was... This was a really great episode for me. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did because, you know, waiting two weeks to film the show is very difficult for me. I had a lot to say um, and, and I don't want it to end, honestly. I think I'm just going to keep droning on and rambling because I, I don't want it to stop. You know, I, I there's still more issues that I wanted to talk about that I didn't, but, you know, we'll leave it there and we'll start preparing for next week and maybe have another uh, long episode then as well. So, look, thank you all uh, so much for tuning in. 
Um, I will go ahead and leave you with some of the clips that I recorded while I was away, just short clips on my, you know, um, my initial response to Charlottesville, um, along with an update to net neutrality. So that way you guys can know if you hadn't seen that, or if you only watched through iTunes or sound or listened through I iTunes and SoundCloud, that way you can hear what I had to say if you don't come to the YouTube channel very frequently. But look, again, thank you all so much. I am so appreciative, um, just because you guys make this show what it is. Without any viewers, we wouldn't be anything. And I really am rambling, like I said I would. But look, <laughs> I'll just end it there. Uh, I missed filming, even though it's just been two weeks. Um, feels good to be back. I'll see you all next week. Have a good day. So I wanted to take a moment to share my thoughts on the situation in Charlottesville. Because like all of you, this has been something that has occupied a great deal of my time mentally. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, I've been tweeting about it a lot. I've posted about it on the Humanist Report Facebook page. For those of you who don't um, follow that page or the Humanist Report Twitter account, you can do so to kind of get more uh, more of my thoughts on this. But really, um, to see this, to see white supremacists, to see literal neo-Nazis protesting in the United States in 2017, you know, even though I wasn't ignorant to their existence. It's still pretty jarring to see this and to really see how this has harmed marginalized groups in the community has really hurt me, you know, to, to see them feel intimidated with the presence of all of these white supremacists who flew around the country. And look, I'm not going to call them alt-right because they want to be called alt-right. It's kind of just their way to rebrand Nazism and white supremacy, so I'm not going to do them a favor and call them alt-right. I'm not going to buy into their marketing strategy. They're Nazis. They're white supremacists, and I think that we should call them what they are. I don't necessarily know whether or not this statistic is true, but um, this is supposedly the largest white supremacist protest in decades, and that to me is really terrifying. So I think that we're seeing right now, this has really been a turning point for Donald Trump's administration. So today we just got news that Steve Bannon was fired, which is good news because white supremacy is not welcome in the White House. So he needed to be fired. He should have never been hired to begin with, but the fact that he's fired, that's good news. But also with Donald Trump, you know, he took the time to condemn both sides and he literally defended Nazis. Not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. There's a lot that I, there's a lot that I have to say about this. And um, to those of you who follow the Humanist Report on Twitter, you'll kind of know where I stand on this. But first of all, we have to address the elephant in the room, and that is that these were Nazis. <laughs> now, to um, 
To those of us who are reasonable people, that's the most obvious statement ever. But I'm seeing a great deal of people denying that they were Nazis. These were Nazis. So there's literally photographic evidence here. Um, we have an image of someone with a Nazi flag. Actually, a couple images of people with a Nazi flag. We have um, a picture of a guy with a Hitler quote on his shirt saying, those who want to live, let them fight, and those who do not want to fight in this world of eternal struggle do not deserve to live. These are people that are literally calling for a white ethnostate. They, they want genocide against people who aren't white. These are Nazis. So the fact that people are denying that these are Nazis, it's absurd to me. So let's start from there. These are Nazis. Um, second of all, um, <laughs> like any protest ever, there is accusations about you know this being funded by George Soros. Every single protest is always accused of this, and some people are saying that he funded the Nazis. These are Nazis. They exist in America, and we can't deny their existence. In fact, I think it's actually really harmful to deny their existence. And for those of you who follow the Humanist Report on Facebook, I actually kind of got into it with a couple of my followers who are telling this weird conspiratorial nonsense. And it's only like two or three people, so let's not overgeneralize because Humanist Report viewers are absolutely informed. I think probably these, these were just Trump supporters who kind of flooded into the page. But, you know, defending the Nazis basically saying, oh, well, you know, they're not Nazis. They're just, you know, they're... They're anti-establishment, alt-right. They're Nazis. They're Nazis. They're Nazis. Um, and I think that we are, as progressives, it's incumbent on us to speak out and be the loudest against this type of hate in 2017. It's never acceptable. It never will be acceptable. And uh, the fact that I even have to debate the presence of Nazis here is absurd to me. They were Nazis. They were chanting blood and soil. They were chanting, Jews will not replace us. They were yelling at the counter-protesters, saying, you know, uh, fuck you faggots. These are not good people. And we have to speak out, like, we have to speak out against this type of hatred. Because, look, this is something that really affects people. You know, even if you live across the country, if you're in a marginalized group and you hear this, if you hear them talking about Jewish people hear them saying faggots and whatnot. I mean, it's something that is just, it really makes you feel sick to your stomach. This is the way that I felt. You know, I watched the Vox documentary, which I think did a great job at kind of presenting uh, both sides of the protest. Not that there are equal sides, but I'm just saying the reporter followed the Nazis and then followed some of the counter-protesters. Um, and look, there's no moral equivalence here. One side, no matter how much you want to condemn Antifa or counter-protesters, one side killed someone. It was an act of terrorism. It was white supremacist terrorism. And even though Donald Trump likes to give himself credit and toot his own horn for saying radical Islamic terrorism, for whatever reason, he can't bring himself to condemn radical white supremacist terrorism. He doesn't want to acknowledge it. He'll never acknowledge it. There's something going on there that's very strange. He'll never, ever acknowledge it. Why can't he say radical Islamic terrorism? Because unless you're going to talk about it, you're not going to solve the damn problem, folks. You're not going to solve very fine people on both sides. He lambasted Barack Obama for not saying radical Islamic terrorism, but he is unable to 
not just acknowledge the existence of um, radical white supremacist terrorism, which they're the biggest domestic threat in terms of terrorism, even more so than radical Islamic terrorism. Um, but also, he defended Nazis. He basically said that these, you know, these are good people here. You know, uh, I'm sure that there's a couple of bad apples, but, you know, don't let a few bad apples spoil the bunch. That's basically what he said. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Very fine people on both sides. That's fucking insane. And this is really a turning point, because if you can't condemn Nazis, then you're not a leader. You are not a leader. And I don't think, see, I saw um, impeach Trump trending on Twitter. That's too nice. It, he needs to resign. We shouldn't have to wait for him to be impeached for whatever violation, the emoluments clause, obstructing justice. He needs to resign. If you can't condemn Nazis, then you don't represent the people of this country. And if you have people like Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell saying, no, these, there's no moral equivalency here. You know, one side is Nazis. Another side is counter-protesters. One side killed the other side. I mean, it's... It's just absurd to me that we're even having this conversation, you know, um, and, and as someone who is from a marginalized minority, I'm a gay person, you know, it, it makes me feel uneasy that these people exist. But the difference is that, you know, if I if I'm in a situation where I, I, I see someone who is, you know, a white supremacist or a homophobe or a Nazi, I can pretend to not be gay. Right. Like me and my my fiance, you know, we've met people who were very homophobic and they've made homophobic comments to us not knowing that we were gay and you know we just pretended like we weren't gay but i mean if you're someone who if you're a black person you can't turn off your blackness there's no way to hide you know like i can hide so and not that you should have to hide but the fact is that people who are in marginalized minorities shouldn't have to feel unsafe in the united states of america it's it's absurd to me so you know, this this whole situation was heartbreaking to me. You know, it really, like I said, I think it was a turning point. Now it's time for people to put pressure on Donald Trump to resign. And I, I understand people who don't want that to happen because Mike Pence is worse, politically speaking. But here's the thing. We, for, for far too long, we allow our leaders to be horrible and not put them in power or not put them in check, you know, not put their power in check. That is, I mean, George Bush tortured people. He wasn't uh, impeached. And a lot of Democrats made the argument, well, then we'd get Cheney. That'd be worse. Right. But maybe if we actually start holding leaders accountable, then they won't be so horrible. But the fact that they get away with everything with literal war crimes now means that they're never, ever going to stop being horrible. So I understand that Mike Pence is worse, objectively speaking, but we can't let that stop us from punishing public officials who are not doing the will of the people. And I think that you have legal justification to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, on the day he was sworn in, he was in violation of the Emoluments Clause because he did not put his businesses in a blind trust. He still is in control of his businesses. So um, he's got to go. He's absolutely got to go. And I absolutely respect people who think that, you know, Mike Pence would be worse because I agree. But, you know, I think this is a turning point. If you can't condemn Nazis, you have no business being the president of the United States. You're not a leader. And at times where people who are vulnerable, who are marginalized, are terrified when they see Nazis and they don't have a leader to reassure them that this is not the way the country is, I think that that's just awful. You know, 
it's it's egregious so as progressives we have to speak out we have to condemn nazism you know and we can't um we can't chalk this up to oh they're paid protesters by george soros stop because to deny that this was a legitimate protest is to deny the existence of nazis and to diminish their existence you're kind of burying your head in the sand and i and i get the fact that a lot of people you know progressives will say well you know what donald trump i mean we still have to blame democrats and neoliberals because they're responsible for donald trump that's absolutely true but donald trump is still culpable in and of himself people also blame you know economic anxiety on people being uh, radicalized and turning to nazism that's absolutely true i mean if you are starved economically then absolutely you are more prone to radicalization we see this not just with nazism but we see this with you know um islamic extremists in the middle east and north africa even though they're economically starved that doesn't mean that they're not still individually culpable i mean we're all victims of neoliberalism and capitalism right but we're not all turning to white supremacy as a result so there's still culpability that you have to you have to hold people accountable. You can't just allow them, well, oh, you know, Donald Trump, you know, it was Hillary Clinton, her Pied Piper strategy, she elevated him, so we have to blame her. Yeah, we have to blame her, but we also have to blame Donald Trump. He's an adult. So, you know, bottom line here, because I'm my thoughts are getting too jumbled because there's just, there's so much, you know, in my mind. Um, this, you know, this was a really horrifying situation. You know, seeing the Nazis protest and chant, Jews will not replace us, it really caused depression. For me and I know a lot of other people who reached out to me because you know again it's not like we were ignorant and we didn't know that they existed but to see it and to see just how big that presence can be in one area it's terrifying you know and these people I mean when the KKK would do their gatherings they would wear hoods because they didn't want to be identified but now even though we have the internet we have people being bold enough to where they're just they're marching with torches and they're showing their faces in the age of the internet. I mean, that's how emboldened they feel because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a white supremacist. It's not just that, you know, he was doing dog whistle racism and pandering to white supremacists to get elected. If you can't denounce Nazism and white supremacy, you're part of the problem. And sure, he condemned bigotry, but he's he's saying that both sides are equal here. Again, one side committed terrorism, killed the other side. The other side was counter-protesting bigotry. So there's no moral equivalency here. Oddly enough, Mitt Romney said it best. Now, he co-opted the term alt-left. This is something else I wanted to touch on. Um, this was a term coined by the likes of Joan Walsh, Joanne Reed. I mean, the neoliberal left tried to... They basically did the same thing that Donald Trump did here. They coined this term in order to lambast progressives and draw an equivalence between the alt-right, which is white supremacists and Nazis, and the progressive left, who by and large were arguing for Medicare for all and to get money out of politics. And now Donald Trump saw that term, he thought it was great, and he decided to use it himself. So here's the thing. If you are one of the individuals that use the term alt-left and you're on the left, you should be ashamed of yourself because you are giving Donald Trump ammunition to attack people who are fighting for what's right. I mean, what progressives are fighting for, we have the antidote to people being radicalized due to economic anxiety, but they don't want to realize that. And again, I'm not saying that people who become radicalized because of economic issues are innocent. They're not because there's a lot of people who are victims of, you know, 
neoliberalism, but they don't turn to white supremacy. So it's just, to me, it's really, uh, it's crazy. So, you know, this is probably one of the most incoherent videos I've ever produced. <laughs> but um, I just, I wanted to kind of just share my thoughts on Charlottesville. Just, you know, get it all out. I, I completely apologize for not being organized. But I wanted to at least let you know where I stand and let people know that it's really, really important that we speak out as vocally as possible. This is on us. We've got to condemn these people. We've got to make sure that they feel embarrassed because even though they have freedom of speech, of course, we have freedom of speech as well. And we need to use our freedom of speech more so than they're using theirs because it's unacceptable. Nazi, There's no place in Nazism in a civilized society. And in fact, Nazism, you can make the case that that doesn't even fall, fall under protected speech because Nazism is inherently genocidal. I mean, they want genocide. So... I've got no sympathy for any of the Nazis that were fired. Um, they're just, they're bad people. Um, so we have to speak out. We have to condemn Nazism. And, you know, we have to make sure that marginalized groups feel protected. We have to make sure that women feel protected in this country. You shouldn't feel threatened by these imbeciles. You know, it's just, it's unacceptable. Um, yeah, so I'll have another video up tomorrow um, that I'm going to record soon after this one got to do some prep for it um yeah charlottesville was just such such a devastating disturbing um and overall more demoralizing event so i wanted to take a moment to share some words from Nina Turner. She was on CNN on two different appearances and she just said everything that I was feeling. And she really, she did a good job at explaining exactly why Donald Trump needs to be a leader and he needs to condemn Nazism and white supremacy unequivocally, which he did not do. Not only did he wait too long to speak out, uh, but I mean, his response has been inadequate. And when you try to draw this moral equivalence between both sides, one side that killed someone that committed an actual act of domestic terrorism, that's just so wrong. And this is, you know, um, it's really hurtful to a lot of people. I've had viewers reach out and say that, you know, they're, they're feeling depressed because of the events in Charlottesville. And it's times like this where we need someone to be a leader, and he's not a leader. He's proven that he's not a leader, and Nina Turner expressed exactly why this is so painful. So this is what she had to say. What happened in Virginia is despicable and despite and despicable in every single way, and every American of good consciousness should understand this. You know, lynching took place in this country, you know, in the late 1800s all the way to the late 1960s. So this is not a lifetime ago. You know, I can hear Nina Simone singing Mississippi Goddamn right now, and I can hear her also singing Strange Fruit right now. People need to understand that there's real flesh and blood, there's real trauma behind what happened in Charlottesville in Virginia for African-American folks, for our Jewish sisters and brothers, and that we cannot tolerate it. And we need the president, not just in his words today, because his words today were better 
than he said 48 hours ago, but he still has a real opportunity to push policy. You know, Don, he took an oath, an oath to protect this country from all enemies, foreign and, and domestic. domestic. Yeah. And domestic terrorism, white supremacy is real. Okay. It is painful. It is in the consciousness and the DNA of this country. And we collectively okay. have to do something about it, starting with the president of the United States of America. Well, you're right. Do you understand the pain? I mean, my heart is skipping beats right now to think about all that my foreparents went through to get to this point in time in America's history. And to have in the 21st century the president of the United States not boldly stand up and say that this is wrong. People died for this. And people are in pain having flashbacks. In the 21st century, we shouldn't be going through this. And so that is the point. The president, his, his daughter is not the president. I'm glad she tweeted that. Go, go Ivanka. But we need the president of the United States to determine in this country that this will not be accepted. Period. Mm -hmm. This is painful. Yeah, so you know where I stand on this, you know, based on my Charlottesville video, if you can get anything out of that. Um, I don't, I think that the fact that people are terrorized because of this event is wrong, you know? You shouldn't have to worry about Nazis in 2017. If you're Jewish, you shouldn't have to worry about the Ku Klux Klan and people carrying torches, marching in the streets. If you're African-American in this country, it's just, there's something inherently wrong about that. And this is one of the easiest things that Donald Trump can do to condemn this unequivocally and stop trying to, trying to draw this false equivalence between both sides. The best thing that he can do to help himself is to denounce this right now, but he won't, he refuses to. And it's because, well, he's probably racist. So um, those of you who are defending Donald Trump right now, I think you're being intentionally obtuse. And I don't care if I piss people off by saying that. I mean, both sides are not equal here. You have to speak out against something like Nazism. I mean, it's so easy. It's easy. You can score political points just by condemning them unequivocally. But he won't even do that. That's how stupid and incompetent this joke of a so-called president is. So he's got to resign. It's time for him to go. This is really a turning point, you know, for his administration. We know he's incompetent. We know he's dumb. We know he's racially insensitive. But to not condemn Nazis unequivocally, that is a new low that not even the scumbag Republican Party is willing to stoop to. When you have Mitch McConnell... Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan, saying, we're not, you know, we'll, we'll go pretty far. We'll strip people off of their health care and make sure they die. Uh, we'll, um, you know, implement voter ID laws to make sure black people are disenfranchised. But we, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go where Trump just went. We are not going to um, stand up and defend Nazis as good people. The good people that Donald Trump was speaking about there... They were chanting blood and soil. They were carrying Nazi flags. Those aren't good people. And if Donald Trump can't condemn that, he has no business being in the White House. He's got to resign. So I've got a quick update for you guys here on net neutrality. So as you all know, the number of comments being submitted to the FCC 
telling Ajit Pai to not cancel net neutrality. Hang on one sec. Is this an auto-playing ad? Yeah. Oh, and you can't mute it. Snap into a Slim Jim! Fuck off. Okay. Seriously, the hill? I've gotta, I gotta take a moment. Just stop doing auto-playing ads. I'm trying to read your article, and your stupid fucking ads won't shut the fuck up. Stop with auto-playing ads. Jesus Christ. Okay, back to net neutrality. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's nothing that makes me more irritated than auto-playing ads. It, it's just so obnoxious. So, anyways, as you all know, uh, there's millions and millions of comments. The comments to stop Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda now surpassed 20 million. And now Ajit Pai is shitting in his pants, which may be why um, he decided to extend the comment deadline all the way to August 30th. So he doesn't know what he's going to do because there's so much support to keep the current net neutrality rules that if he now rolls back net neutrality, he's going against millions of people. I mean, this is unprecedented. I believe here the article states that last time there was like 4 million comments that were filed. This time, five times that. 20 million comments filed, the majority of which are telling him to keep net neutrality. Now, of course, he's going to try to factor in the fake comments that uh, want net neutrality to go the way of the dodo. But I mean, at this point, there's nothing that you can do to stop the momentum for net neutrality. The American people do not want net neutrality to go away. We want net neutrality. So look, there's still time. And since he did extend the comment deadline, that's all the more reason for us to send another complaint. So if you go to humanistreport.com slash save the net, then I have all the links on that particular page to um, allow you to file a complaint, to call the FCC, to email the FCC. And I promise you, uh, I don't have any ads on that particular page at all. I mean, we do have ads on the website, but on that page, there's no ads. So it, you're not going to get hit with a Slim Jim ad, like fucking the hill here. Uh, but anyways, I just wanted to, pro to provide you guys with a really quick update because I think this is really important. I think that since we now have this additional time, we've got to capitalize on it and submit even more comments. Let's push that number to 30 million. Uh, because we have to save net neutrality. This isn't just about the internet being open. This is now about democracy because we, without net neutrality, I mean, that really does hurt democracy. So um, let's let's do what we can to put more pressure on Ajit Pai because with this extension, that tells me that he's feeling the heat right now. So in a way, I do think that this is good news um, regardless of what his public reasoning is, but we've got to make sure that he knows. Don't mess with net neutrality.